0: Welcome back to the show. This is Speak up with Anthony Scaramucci, also known as the mooch. Uh, what a great reception we're getting and thank you everybody. Lots of voicemails, emails, great questions and also great engagement online. So I'm at Scaramucci on Twitter now known as X. If you need me, hit me there. I'll respond quickly. Just mention the show. Speak up with Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, you want to talk to us, it's 9-2-THE-MOOCH. So that's 928-436-6624. Uh, joining me today, now I am not going to tell you how far back I go with Ron Onsana because I'm lying about my age. Ron is now an elder statesman. I'm a new pup in the industry. Uh, but exactly. Sure, well, I think we know each other for three decades. Mr. Onsana is the chief market strategist at Dynasty, a company I know well, Shawpenny's company. Obviously, give give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about Dynasty, Ron. But you're also a senior analyst at CNBC. And last week, on the screws, literally like a bombardier, you landed right on what the Fed was going to do this week. And I want to applaud you for that. And if you're with it, I'd like to start there. The, The Fed decision, why they made that decision, uh, what do you think about near-term and long-term inflation, uh, and where is Jerome Powell going these days?
1: So, Anthony, thanks. Look, I mean, we could also probably call this segment Sicilians in Suits, but that might be for another show and another time. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a
0: bloody, it's a bloody and more gory show than the <laughs> yeah. one you and I are about to perpetrate.
1: Yes. Um, look, thanks. Look, thanks for that acknowledgement. I mean, I, I've been of the mind that. Uh, a lot of economists incorrectly were comparing this post-pandemic period to the 1970s. And inflation was not going to be a long-term phenomenon that lasted as it did from 1966 to 1980, where we were at 13% inflation, 11% unemployment, 20% interest rates. I thought this was really a post-pandemic environment. And the Fed ultimately was going to capitulate, recognize that inflation is falling faster than their forecast. I I wasn't sure that they were going to tell us that they were going to stop raising rates. And I certainly wasn't um, of the mind that they were going to tell us or telegraph that they were going to cut rates next year, which is what they did this week. And that, that part was surprising. It is what I ultimately thought they would do for the very reasons that I said. The economy's slowing, inflation's falling faster than they thought. You know, there's a wall of commercial real estate debt coming due that needs to be refinanced next year. And so there's a lot of reasons why the Fed will be cutting in 2024. And I think now that they've acknowledged that and effectively set the stage for this pivot in policy, it's a pretty important moment for investors to recognize. Why Why telegraph it,
0: though? Uh, because I know that uh, Chairman Powell is worried about bubbles. He's worried about over-exuberance. You and I have been talking about that word, irrational exuberance, since the mid-1990s. 19, December 2nd, 1996. December 2nd, 1996. And I know it well. I'm going to tell you why. I started my first company. I left Goldman Sachs on November 30th. Started my company on December 1st, and we had a mini crash on December 2nd, <laughs> and I was panicked. I was panicked, Ron, so I remember it well. Uh, because of this exuberance, though, why telegraph it? Why show your cards? Uh, uh, Marcus reaching all-time highs. We're experiencing a full-blown Santa Claus rally. Yep. Uh, is he worried that he's brewing a bubble
1: with the telegraphic? I think bubbles, you know, bubbles are different, as as you well know, Anthony, bubbles are different types of things, right? They they require uh, a whole host of of different ingredients, not the least of which is first, you know, something around which we want to bubble, which very, very well may be something like AI, but it's early, requires you know, some disbelief, then it requires very easy money, then it requires a lot of public participation, and then everybody needs to be on the same side of the boat at the same time. I don't think we're there yet. There's, you know, $5 trillion in cash on the sidelines, and true, in the last couple of days, some retail money has come into the market, the Dow's hit a new all-time high, the S&P and NASDAQ are within striking distance, but look, that's been a function of the market discounting an end to the Fed's rate hiking cycle now for several months since they went on pause. And so I think it's a rational response to the notion that rates are peaking, which as the cost of capital comes down, risk assets like stocks and long term bonds look better. Other assets, whether it's crypto or something else also, and gold getting a a boost from these things. So I I don't think we're I don't think he's easing financial conditions so significantly by acknowledging the reality of where we are in this cycle. And I also think he's trying to cushion the blow. Um, In the event that they're starting to shift their gaze from inflation, which appears to be under control to the risk of recession next year. And so if they're trying to achieve that goal, you know, that unicorn goal of of, of a soft landing in the economy, that's why they're making the shift. And I I imagine that's why they're telegraphing it. They're saying, "Okay, look, we kind of hit our target. Now it's time to make sure that the economy stays on course.
0: He's saying 75 basis points next year. That feels like what the cut's going to be. Do you yeah. think he means that? Do you think it's 50? Do you think it's 100 basis points? I think is it's it 100. More? So you think it's more? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Based on watching your interviews from last week, I think you think they've got to cut more. Uh, is that front end loaded in 24, back end loaded, or quarterly?
1: <sighs> look, so you, you know this old expression, right, that, that typically interest rates go up an escalator and come down in an elevator. This time they went up in an elevator and they might come down in an escalator, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Fed yeah. did so much so fast, even relative to what was happening in the early 1980s. Yeah. I think they're gonna be more judicious in their cuts. But I think as you look at a couple of these different things, it's commercial real estate debt, multifamily housing debt, consumer credit debt, where delinquencies are now starting to rise towards recessionary levels, same with auto loans. And then you look at you know the wall of federal debt that needs to be refinanced. And then on top of that, once they start cutting interest rates and bring mortgage rates down significantly, they're going to unleash a supply of homes that are simply off the market right now because buying a house is is unaffordable. Once that supply hits the market, that's going to put more downward pressure on inflation because the shelter cost will come down. And I think they're really trying to work this through. And I don't think three quarters of a point will be enough to get mortgage rates down to a point where, um, at least on the residential real estate side, Things will be affordable enough until they've taken them down 100, 125, maybe even 150 basis points over time.
0: Well, I think I think it's well said. I think the the, the thing that I'm concerned about is perception becomes reality in the economy sometimes. And you and I look at the economy. I look at the economic dashboard. It looks great. You're 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 flying. Everything seems okay. You've got Goldilocks indications on the dashboard. I'm cool with it, you're cool with it. Yet when you ask people, the man and woman on the street, how are they doing? They're saying, no, no, I'm not doing well. My disposable income's been crimped. Energy prices are down recently, but the last two years explosion in prices has crimped my savings, hurt my consumption. Uh, Most people are giving a letter grade C minus to the Biden administration, uh, which they have to be upset about because the dashboard looks great and you could hit that unicorn. So my question is uh, perception versus reality in the economy, Ron, and how much fear do you have that perception could become reality?
1: Yeah, I, I've never, so the, vibe, the word vibe session has been getting a lot of attention in, in the last few weeks, the, the notion that we can have a psychological recession. I've been doing this almost 40 years now, and I've never actually seen that happen. Now, the way I've seen data cut around polls and other, Consumer sentiment readings.
0: Go a little easy easy on aging us out of the conversation. (laughs) You're younger than I am, man. Unless it's going to be Charlie Munger and and
1: Warren (laughs) Popp. Well, well, I'm not not ready to depart the stage quite yet. Try not to
0: age us out, okay? But keep going.
1: So, yeah. So, look, I don't think psychological recessions have ever taken place in my experience. I think what's going on right now, and this is from all the data that I've seen around the polling. When you ask people about the national economy, they're generally pretty bearish about it when you ask them about their individual situations, they say they're doing fine. Yes, they realize that the overall price level post-pandemic has risen about 19 or 20%. But as you said, energy prices are falling pretty hard. Uh, We're seeing food prices last month were down almost 5%. Those things are starting to normalize. Wages are growing faster than inflation. And and then beyond that, interesting graphic that I saw this week, a lot of the opinions about the economy cut along political affiliation lines. So if you're a Republican right now, you think the economy's horrible. You think it was better under Trump. If you're a Democrat, quite the opposite is true. So I think there are narratives on both sides to which people subscribe that don't necessarily reflect economic reality. And so I think that it's, it's an unusual scenario. I haven't seen this too often. <coughs> Excuse me. But it does. And the chart that I looked at, this has really been true since after the Clinton presidency. When you look at the Clinton years... Republicans and Democrats generally agreed that the economy was great. After Bill Clinton is when you see this political divide really start to take place over perceptions about how the economy is doing. And whichever party in power got either credit or blame from the other side uh, with respect to how things they believed were playing out at the national level, as opposed to their own personal experience. So you like
0: the stock market here. You like the market in 2024.
1: Yeah, Black- look, I mean, <laughs> in
0: general, 2024.
1: Yeah, you know, they say that they never ring a bell with a bull market. As soon as the Fed stopped raising interest rates, the bell rang, right? And we've yeah. seen a rip it to the upside. It, it may have
0: rang before, it, right? Because some of the market participants were like, hey, they have to if you look at the data. Um, you are an AI investor. I think at least I believe you are. I hear you talking I'm, about AI. I'm paying AI. attention to it a lot, yeah. They're paying attention to it a whole lot. Uh, I love AI. There's people in my family that hate AI. They listen to Elon Musk. They're worried that we're going to have Skynet in five years, things like that. Uh, Talk about AI and investing for a moment, but then also talk about AI and its impact on the economy in terms of the improvement of productivity, economic innovation, uh, efficiency, cost savings, et cetera.
1: So as as Groucho Marx used to say, I'll take the second question first. Um, Yeah, that productivity enhancement that's going to come from AI and and we're already starting to see it. The adoption rates for artificial intelligence and its uses in a wide variety of businesses, whether it's straight tech or whether it's fast food restaurants, where we're seeing it be deployed um, for order flow, for delivery of the food inside or outside the restaurant, uh, using large language models and natural language processing to take in orders without having somebody to stand in the window and do that. All of this stuff is happening very, very quickly. And it's productivity enhancing, as you say, it increases efficiency and ultimately improve profitability for a wide variety of different businesses, including our own. In financial services, you're going to start to see AI assists for advisors, for individual investors, and for others. And you're going to see that rolled out. Now, yeah, are there risks? Certainly, you know, they haven't solved the hallucin- hallucination problem with ChatGPT. You can get bad answers because they call bad data uh, when they're gathering all this information. That needs to be solved. Whether or not, you know, The the Skynet uh, analogy, which is brought up a lot, you know, and are we going to see a a Terminator type experience? You know, that's something for national security and and defense uh, department officials to really, I think, get their minds wrapped around. I'm not skilled enough in that area to say whether or not that's a real risk. People are talking about within five years, AI matching or exceeding human intelligence.
0: When will the first novel, fiction book, best selling fiction book be?
1: With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com/slash tech. All lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, you know, to a certain extent, Jurassic Park was kind of a, 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 a the prequel to that, in, in the sense that chaos theory was something that michael Crichton uh, a personal friend of mine had had worried about and, and and when you get uncontrollable unstable systems, you get unexpected results um, and and I think so that the prequel's already out there and and I think that next wave is going to be yes yeah, something that that takes place that becomes completely uncontrollable, and to a certain extent look even um uh, two thousand and one space odyssey was was go, dead dating back even further
0: yeah but I'm, but I'm really talking about the computer itself, yeah types out and prints a 300-page novel. Oh, I
1: see. Oh, you mean actually pr- yeah. producing human content? Yeah. Well, there are going to yeah. be some, pro- as we know from the writer's strike and the actor strike, there are going to be some prohibitions on that. It's it, it can already be done. Whether or not it's actually writing a book on its own versus mm-hmm. stealing a ton of IP from the internet and taking in all the data that other writers have used to create great works of literature and then putting it into a format that can be recognized by the system. I think that's the open question. When will it have the intelligence to write with emotion and mm-hmm. to write from experience? I don't know when that happens. I think that's still a ways off.
0: Well, I, I punched into my iPhone, uh, please write me a poem about Ron and Sana. <laughs> good God. And I got to tell you, it came out, You're they're very well liked by these machines. Okay, so That's good to hear. Yeah, it's a very flattering poem that the machine, it was almost like a love poem, actually. So oh. uh, maybe... Uh, it's funny because my wife doesn't publish much, so... Yeah, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll post it in our graphic <laughs> section at <laughs> yeah. some point during the show. Uh, I want to go to your outlook in 2024. You tipped your hand a little bit. You're positive. Uh, tell us what you think happens in 2024.
1: So, I mean, if, if we're just going to do some fairly boilerplate analysis, right? We, we know now that the Fed's very likely to ease... My late friend, Marty Zweig, yours as well, always said, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the tape. Tape is favorable. The Fed's about to become favorable if it's not already. And then you have the presidential election cycle. Third year, typically the strongest. Fourth year is the second strongest. And if you have the Fed easing next year, um, that's good for risk assets of of really all kinds. Uh, and, And then, you know, listen, I don't think politics will be an issue per se for the market next year. I think in 2025, it might be a different story. We don't know who will inhabit the White House. We don't know the composition of Congress. And we also know in 2025, the Trump tax cuts expire and they'll have to either be extended, the salt cap might uh, have to be lifted or altered. You know, there'll be a lot of moving parts come 2025. Next year, if we can get through it without a government shutdown, if we can get through the appropriations process, get all our bills passed, get Ukraine money, get Israel money, get Taiwan money, then, you know, it's kind of a gridlock type environment. So I think from that perspective, you get the Fed as a tailwind, the economy probably slowing down, inflation coming down. That's an environment that, that's pretty good for risk assets, you know, long-term treasuries. Um, there'll probably be some places in private credit that will be interesting at the, up, at, not to be too far in the weeds, but at the upper end of the capital structure where you have, you know, collateralized senior secured loans, those things will probably be uh, a decent investment as well. So I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic that from a market perspective, next year's all right. Maybe not as good as this year. Like we're up 20% plus in the S&P, up right. almost 40% in the Nasdaq. Yeah, but after, yeah. after
0: a brutal 2022. Extremely brutal 20, 2022. So, so, you know, we've had a little bit of a rebound. Yeah. Before we go to mooch you and we're going to take some questions from the audience, I'd like you to chime in on both. Give me one or two predictions.
1: I think Joe Biden wins the White House. Okay. By the narrowest of margins. Okay. Um, and I think we have a mild recession in the make it quarter. through the
0: term. Does he is he our is he our president handing over the reins january twentieth, two thousand twenty nine? I think if he gets reelected he stays in. OK, so he makes it. So he's had, yeah. He has the health and vigor and energy to make it. Yeah. You know,
1: I talk, Anthony, and I'm sure you do this as well. I mean, I talk to people on like the Biden administration. I what FDR did as well. You know, we'll yeah. see. I know. Yeah, I mean, I talk to people I in the like, Biden administration. I like administration. the
0: president. I pray for his health. I'm just asking because, you know, he's uh, he's he's moving up the ladder, as we yeah. all are. He's getting
1: he's getting told up. by people who, he, who brief him on, on a fairly regular basis that, that he's with it, that he's not out of step, and that mm-hmm. it's a misperception that he's, you know, Look, he's 81. I mean, you know, but we've well, seen... Well,
0: I think we're talking to the same people. You know, yeah. those very same people have said to me, he is with it, but he's got about five good hours a day.
1: And so they have to manage his time. Do <laughs> you remember that the George good. Bush went home every day at 5.30? Yeah, I do remember. Right? I mean...
0: That, that, that used to scare me, and then I saw some of the things he was doing, and then I was okay. Man, <laughs> maybe he's going
1: home at yeah. 2.30. I'm, I'm not sure that. Donald Trump put in a full eight hours as president, either. Or he watched a lot he, of television. He got... He got up at 4.30. He didn't
0: get to the Oval until about 11.30. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of tweeting and commotion and yelling and screaming, you know. I think five um, good
1: productive hours yeah. from a president who, who, in my estimation, is doing a very good job, particularly yeah. on the foreign policy front. Um, I think
0: he's I think he's done a good job, and I think he's underrated or they're not doing a great job
1: horrible of explaining job horrible.
0: the great job that he's doing. He's actually done a good job, you know. Yeah,
1: I, and, and look, I think that's been... You know, since I would say since Hillary Clinton, the Democrats have done a horrible job on messaging, whether Mm -hmm. it's in a campaign or whether it's in actual, you know, governance. I don't think they've managed to be great salespeople um, if and when they've done the right thing.
0: You know, you know, I'm going to let you off the hook because that is such a big, bold prediction. We're going with that one prediction and I'm writing it down. I'm going to hold it to you. And if you're wrong, I'm going to ask ChatGBT to write a nasty poem about you. (laughs) We've got a love poem going right now, but we're going to see if we can fire in a nasty one. Uh, We're going to turn now to Mooch you. Stand by. Questions abound here at Speak Up with the Mooch. And so the topic today is on renting versus buying. And so this is the biggest deal to somebody like me uh, because, unfortunately, I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. I know Ron has experienced this as well. Most of the people in my neighborhood were renters. My parents were renters until 1962 when they borrowed $5,000 from my mom's dad, my grandpa, uh, and they bought a $16,000 house. $11,000 mortgage, Ron and Sana. 30 years, I think the interest rate at that time was about three and a half percent. Yep. And so my dad had a mortgage burning party in 1992. Now, you may think these are small numbers, but my pops was making about $22,23,000 a year as a crane operator, and it was eating up a large part of his uh, uh, income. Uh, but let me tell you what, that house today is probably worth seven, $800,000. Interestingly enough, Ron, you'll appreciate this. Taxes on that house are about 17,000. Yeah. So they're they're more than what my folks had paid on the house. Why am I bringing all this up? When you're rented, okay, if it's temporary, you're moving into a city to get a sense for the city or you're, you're up at college, totally understandable. But if you're gonna plant roots in an area, you gotta spring for the buying. You gotta try to extend yourself a little bit. Now, one thing we didn't talk about, and I looked through this today, uh, interest rates being up as much as they have been in the last couple of years have pushed the mortgages and pushed the differential up a lot. Yeah, uh, But I recommend to people, try to figure it out, bite the bullet. You want to be an owner, not a renter. It's a game changer in terms of creating equity for yourself. What say you, Ron Ansona?
1: I agree 100%, and I have the exact opposite experience that you did. So when I was two years old, we were living with my grandmother in downtown Buffalo, um, we sold her house, apparently. She gave my parents $8,000 to buy a $21,500 $21, house in a suburb of Buffalo. Our monthly mortgage, and I knew this far too young in my life, was $164. And I think at the time, my dad was making about $6,000 a year. And, and we ended up owning that house till we moved to California. And by the time we were able to buy a house in California, prices had gotten so far away from us that my parents then rented for the rest of their lives and never built up that equity. So I agree with you that the equity in home ownership is extremely important. The way around the affordability question right now, and I'm just looking at mortgage rates today, the 30 years come down to 660. Four weeks ago, was at 8%. So you've already had a 1.5% cut in a a fixed 30-year mortgage. If I were buying a house right now, I would use an adjustable rate mortgage or an interest-only mortgage. Um, in order to bring that monthly cost down because the differential between renting and buying is historically wide today. It is much, much cheaper from uh, the perspective of what percentage of your disposable income goes towards shelter. It's much cheaper to rent than it is to own. So I would still make the purchase if I could. I'd use an adjustable rate mortgage. I would use an interest-only mortgage. And then when the time comes around to refinance, I would do that because you're basically levering your ability to buy a house and increase the equity that you'll ultimately have in that home once rates fall back to a much more reasonable level. And the other thing that's going on right now, Anthony, is that the supply of housing is so constrained because mortgage rates have been so high. You have no homes for sale. And, and I don't mean that literally, but, you know, relative to, to history, um, the supply of available existing single family homes is extremely small. And so you've got a post pandemic lockdown. People can't downsize because it costs them the same amount of money to do it. And first time home buyers have been priced out of the market.
0: All right. Well, we're in agreement. It is tough. I'm not saying it isn't, but God, uh, things right. that are worth something are always tough. If you think things are easy, they never are. Uh, Ron and I can tell you that an overnight success takes a minimum of 20 years. Uh, and sometimes Absolutely. you just have to grind things out, uh, uh, but try to be an owner, not a renter. I want to go to some audience questions. Uh, we had a fabulous voicemail pipe in. Uh, but let's go to the emails first, okay? Please address the difference between consumer sentiment and economic growth and the recent increase in real incomes. This is from Andrew from Colorado, Ron. I'll let you start. What do you say there?
1: So again, it ref- you know, going back to what we were discussing earlier, I think you know the, the consumer sentiment data are, are very strange to me relative to economic reality, and I understand that people have suffered through now a price shock that's lasted about two years. But the pace of inflation has certainly slowed considerably. Real wages are up across the board. And we've seen whether it's new union contracts or whether it's at the lower end of the income spectrum that the bottom 10% are actually gaining more ground than they have at any other time since about the 1960s or 70s. So I, I think there is this you know, yawning gap between perception and reality. And some of it, look, you and I both live in the media world. Some of it is colored by what people say on TV. And again, what party you affiliate with and who you think would ultimately do a better job on the economy. And so I think that's been a real, has had a real impact on on people's perceptions of what is happening. When you look empirically at the data, the unemployment rate is 3.7%. The prevailing inflation rate has gone from 9.1% down to 3.1% and falling still. Gasoline prices are cheaper today than they were a year ago. Food prices are beginning to fall. Relative to the rest of the world, the U.S. is growing faster with less inflation than any other country among the developed nations of this world. So we're in good shape. I had, uh, Anthony, a chance to talk to Tony Blair a couple months ago in an interview, and he said we are in an extremely enviable position when compared to the rest of the world. Strongest economy, strongest military, and yet we tend to forget that. and, And we think only in absolute terms, not in relative terms, that we are really outperforming the rest of the world by leaps and bounds right now?
0: Well, you know, I think it's fascinating. I, I, I think that we're in post-traumatic stress from COVID. So we yeah, almost man. have a post-traumatic yeah. consumer disorder right now where, hey, we lock people up. We put masks on their children. We said, you, you got to stay in your house. We forced them to take the vaccine. And they panicked. They got scared, uh, result of which savings rates went way high during that period of time. Uh, and then we got hit with inflation because of the overcorrection from all the stimulus. And so I just think it has people very, very scared. So even though things are going well, they're afraid that the uh, sky is going to fall or rocks going to hit them in the head. So mm-hmm. I get that. Let's go to the next question.
1: I don't think that's going to happen. By the way, I, 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 I actually think that the longer term outlook is pretty good.
0: I don't. I don't either. But here's the beauty of it, and you know this, and I know this. It has happened to you and I nine times since we came into the business. Yeah. We've experienced nine bear yeah. markets. So even if it does happen, okay, the point of Wealthy on and the point of Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci and your whole career has been dedicated to thinking long-term and managing through the cyclical downturns because one thing you and I both know, markets run in cycles, uh, but the trend and the trajectory has been up into the right for America mm-hmm. For 125 years. So yeah, sky may fall. Yeah, you want to know
1: where the Dow was on the day I was born? 661. I do. <laughs> it was It's 37,000
0: really, now. You're, you're, you're causing a lot of pain here, okay? I mean, you're really dating yourself. <laughs> the Dow when I was younger born I was 34,000. It's 36,000 right now. <laughs> 37,000. Okay? Yeah, 37,000. See that? No, I'm kidding. I don't know. I don't know what it was when I was born. But, uh, and Santa and I are contemporaries. Let me just leave it at that. Uh, how can the greatest debtor nation of all time continue to leverage its world reserve currency status to exert geopolitical control worldwide? This is from Steve from New Mexico. You want to take that one?
1: So, look, I, you know, I think there's been, you know, a lot of hand wringing over the, um, Status of the dollar as a reserve currency, the level of debt that the U.S. has accumulated, which, look, I'm not thrilled with, uh, but is so far still somewhat manageable. We borrow in our own currency, much unlike other countries, which gives us a fair amount of flexibility. Um, The dollar is used in 65 percent of global trade. It touches 95 percent of all foreign exchange transactions. So dislodging the dollar, and, and I think that's underpinning this question, is going to be difficult in the US, again, from both a military and economic standpoint, is the strongest nation on the planet. So we do have to adjust and, and address the heavy indebtedness that we have, which has been the result in responsibility, and, and we can ba- blame both parties for it. And it has to be addressed in some intelligent fashion somewhere down the road. I don't see any viable alternative to the dollar. And so whether it's the BRIC countries, you know, putting together some alternative currency basket. and again, you and I may differ on crypto. I don't think crypto replaces the dollar as, as a reserve unit. It may be a you know digital gold or what have you. Um, I, I just these these in a certain sense. While I worry about this, I, I much I worry more about China defaulting before we do. China's debt to GDP ratio is three hundred percent. When you understand how China's debt is managed, they they're responsible not just for the federal debt but municipal debt throughout the country and the debt of state-owned enterprises. And their economy, in my estimation, is failing. So we're not. And so while we do have considerable market power when it comes to the dollar, and you know this, Anthony, every time there's a global crisis, what happens? Every central bank on the planet calls the Fed and asks for dollars and dollar liquidity. So I I really think that we do have that leverage. It exists, and, and we use it whenever possible.
0: And I I, I think the last point that I'd like to make on that, then we'll go to a a voicemail question, is hear what Ron is saying. You can get scared by the total amount of the debt, but then you're not looking at the assets of the United States. And don't forget, the U.S. government owns 28 percent of the land. I mean, you could Google it. I mean, I don't know if that's the exact number, but it's pretty close. Uh, We've got our military. We've got these natural resources that are literally second to none, uh, and we're protected by these two amazing oceans. So, so this is a fortress. Uh, we don't necessarily have to pay back that debt uh, as much as we have to grow out of it. And, uh, you know, the, the scary thing uh, that's sometimes said to people that shouldn't overly scare them is we never paid back the debt from World War II. That's true. But we ended up growing <laughs> out of the debt. Okay. And so so I don't want people to be in the Armageddon zone Uh, The most confident and the most optimistic investors think long-term, and those are the ones that make money. The pessimists get it right once in a while. And I want to point out to everybody that if you're a stock trader almanac enthusiast, 83% of the time, the stock market goes up in an election year. 83% of the time. And let me tell you, concomitant to that figure, the Fed has just announced that they'll be cutting rates into 2024 so there's a reason and the fundamental reason why ron and i are both bullish and optimistic about 24. let's go to the voicemail uh from annie from new york hey anthony this is annie calling in from new york and i wanted to get your take on jp morgan tripling its crypto team all while Jamie Dimon is saying, if I was the government, I'd close it down. It <laughs> seems like a double standard to me. What are your thoughts? I would say, Annie, that Mr. Dimon, uh, I think Ron will probably agree, he's one of the smartest people in financial services, and he's had a legendary career, and he kept that bank growing and together through many crises, ups and downs. and He's subjected to fairly stiff and sometimes uh, punery regulation from Washington. And when he's being questioned by people like Elizabeth Warren uh, and with all respect to Elizabeth Warren, a former professor from Harvard Law School, a very smart person. But in my opinion, not the best agent for financial services regulation, uh, primarily because she doesn't really understand how the whole system works. Uh, And so we have a 70 plus year old woman dictating terms of banking regulation at a time when we probably need something a little bit more advanced than that. Mr. Diamond knows that uh, he's up against it. And so when he says things to her, we should shut it down, it takes pressure off of him. Now he's making a mistake doing that because it's temporary pressure. He has to walk back those statements. He always goes to marijuana as the analogy. And so recently he said, well, I don't smoke pot, but it's legal in the country. And if you wanna smoke it and we need to bank it, we'll end up banking it. And so, so he's in that mid zone position. And trust me, because I know the people in his digital area, uh, they groan and moan every time he speaks up negatively about the crypto markets. <laughs> Ron, you want to say anything?
1: Yeah, look, I, th- I agree. And, and, you know, you, you can say those things publicly and still build out a unit that's going to make money from crypto, just as you can build out a unit that's going to make money from banking, marijuana, whatever your personal predilection might be. As a CEO, you, there's, you have, I think, the freedom to say certain things, and Jamie has certainly earned it. But he also knows that if there's money to be made within his organization, he's not going to be left behind. So he'll build out that team to make sure that the bank is covered and that they have an operation that that, that can um, mine, if you will, additional profits as banks are, you know, in, intent, inclined to do. So I'm not really, you know, it's funny. He also said the world wasn't prepared for a 7% interest rate. And we've gone down ever since he said that. And so, look, I mean, even smart people get things wrong and and, yeah, and, and maybe, on, you know. Loading the boat on one side.
0: You Listen, know. you know, I but I, so it doesn't take my respect away from him. Uh, you were going to say something no, not at all. related to optimism and long-term optimism. I want you to say it before we blow blow it off.
1: Yeah, look, I think when we were talking about the national debt, I mean, if if the Federal Reserve starts cutting interest rates and does so in a meaningful fashion, that debt service burden that the U.S. currently is dealing with at six hundred and fifty billion dollars this year maybe 850 billion next year. If the Fed left rates where they were, the debt service burden for the U.S. government would be a trillion dollars, the largest single line item in the budget. If they start cutting rates, that all changes and that, that service burden starts to fall. So when people get very, very wound up about this, and again, I have concerns about it. I have concerns about the long-term health of entitlement programs, which need to be addressed and probably adjusted for you know, longer lifespans over the long run. I think if, if, if rates start coming down in a meaningful fashion, that's going to take a lot of pressure off the federal government. Hope, hopefully it won't induce them to add on to the debt and you know continue to build larger and larger deficits. But it will take some pressure off if rates come down and, and, and reduce the burden that we have at the moment.
0: Well, and it's very thoughtful stuff. We got one more email coming in. Can you give a few pointers on trading psychology that have worked for you <laughs> Thanks and keep up the great work. All right, well, I appreciate that, Dean. We're we're doing our best here. Uh yeah. I'll start with this. Mr. Onson is also a trader. Yeah. Uh the worst thing that you can do sometimes is, is is put your ego into a situation. The absolute worst thing that you could do. Um I want to give Dean a big shout out though. He's tried calling in last week. Uh and he's a persistent SOB, Ron, which you know I love because that's my whole life is about <laughs> persistence. <laughs> And uh, I am I, familiar, yes. But, but Dean, I appreciate it, man. Calling in a few times, said, "Scrap that, Scaramucci's not answering the phone." Uh, he fires in the email. But here's the thing: I would say, I'm at my best when I take my ego out of the situation. My ego's injected into the situation, I am absolutely terrible. If I get emotionally invested in something, a name, a security, a uh, digital currency, uh, what ends up happening is I make mistakes. I get over anxious at the top. And i get very very frightened at the bottom and so you have to be dispassionate as a best an investor i'm at my best when i'm able to do that i think that's the big lesson that i've learned in my career anything you want to add there Ron?
1: yeah i think look if you're going to trade and 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 not be an, a long-term investor if you're really going to trade and be a trader you you need to develop or learn a disciplined strategy that you don't abandon again, as you said, when you get married to a position, I mean, some people really fall in love with their investments or their trades. They fight the market. They think they're right. Whether you're right or not, in the long run, you can get chewed up uh, if you stick to a position too long and the market's going against you. So you need you needed a very exacting discipline. You need sell stops. You need the types of protective um, devices, if you will, that help keep you from making big mistakes. Most successful traders are right 51% of the time big and wrong 49% of the time small. And that, that's kind of really where, you know, you look at all the great hedge fund managers, they try not to make huge mistakes and, they try, and they'll walk away if something's not working. And they are, as you say, dispassionate. And I, and I think that's, that's something that people really need to learn when it comes to trading versus investing, which is putting money away for the long haul.
0: You you see, it's interesting because I have a a friend of mine who's a hedge fund manager. I'm an investor in his firm, Steve Cohen, .72. He's applied some of that trading mentality to the trade deadline for the New York Mets. I don't know if you caught that, right? He said, all right, we're not making it. He blew everybody out. He went after some prospects. And so we'll have to see if that translates over into sports, Mr. Onsana. But you've been absolutely terrific to join. I'm not sure. Right. Well, none of us, though. We'll have to see. (laughs) I was going to say. We know know our friend David. I'm not a huge analytics fan. Yeah, well, we have uh, a problem with Carolina Panthers. Let me tell you something about these guys. They adapt like they've had to adapt over the generations in the markets. And so my money's long-term on them. Uh, Next week, we're going to be doing predictions for 2024. You had some here for Mr. Ansana, a CNBC senior analyst. He's also chief market strategist at Dynasty. Where can we find you before we wrap, Ron? What's your Twitter handle? Your ex? I am on Twitter. Twitter.
1: I am on. Yeah, thank you, that I'm on Twitter. I'm on Threads. I'm on Facebook. I am on Instagram. Uh, there to be found, Twitter or X, whatever the heck it's called these days, is at R Insana. Everything else you'll find under my, my normal name. Somebody took Ron Insana on Twitter when it first started, so I had to go with my well, my you're first a initial guy. Um... I mean, it's
0: like the real the real Ron Insana.
1: You know, you're a <laughs> good guy, man. Uh, well, thank you know so much. That, you to you tell, tell that to my wife and kids.
0: <laughs> well, I, I will tell that the next time I see them. This is Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. Uh please call in. You can leave voicemails here. We'll pick it up. Dial in at 92 the mooch, 928-436-6624. Until next week, this is a wrap from Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. Thank you very much. <music>